it's going to be a wild ride. So buckle yourselves in. Hello and welcome to a special guest interview, part of the Stromash NFL Scotland podcast. And we can't have any more special guest than this young gentleman, a veteran of our television screens, the apple of all of our eyes. He is Iron Mike Carlson. Mike, great to see you as always. Yeah, it's, thank you. And um, yeah, it's great to be doing this. Uh, it's always it's always one of the, the nicest weeks of the year, I think, is Super Bowl week because it's um, it's a tremendous build-up, obviously, and, a, and a, a gigantic hype machine. But in my mind, um, from the point I started doing them live uh, and on site quite a bit um, for the BBC, which was the um, 2007 season, the 2008 Super Bowl in Phoenix, 42, They've actually been a remarkably good run of game. Um, you know, there hasn't been a, the only one sided one was really um, in New York, uh, Bronco, when Seattle beat the Broncos. But otherwise, there's been not only a lot of close games, but probably two or three of the best Super Bowls ever in that, in that run. And, um, you know, I, you look at, say, FA, FA Cup finals, which always, Back in the day when it mattered more than stuff like Jeff Hinsley, but the buildup and the hype was always huge, and the game would often turn out to be relatively disappointing, and that was true of Super Bowls as well. But we're, we're, we've really been on a, on a great run of Super Bowls since two, the 2007 season, you know, and and I think this year's game is probably going to be another, you know, on paper it looks to be another good and balanced game. Well, you've probably been asked to questions quite repetitively over the last week since the, the, the games were announced. Uh, number one, um, you get all the time, uh, Mike, you're very handsome, can I have your number? And number two, is it going to be the Chiefs or is it going to be the 49ers that lift the Lombardi? That's a really tough one. Um, yeah, I looked at the line and I was actually surprised that the Chiefs are underdogs because to me they were they should be the favorites or they would be the favorites in this. But um, I think basically what has happened is that the line is based on how the Niners played during the season and not in the playoffs, and and how the Chiefs played during most of the season and not in the playoffs. But what I see is the Niners have been less impressive in in their two playoff wins. And the Chiefs, although some might argue they were they were lucky or whatever, I think what we saw in in the Chiefs season since um, probably since their loss on Christmas Day to the Raiders, Andy Reid went to a new idea for him on offense, and he's really trying to keep possession of the ball, ball control, less razzle dazzle, fewer shots downfield, more running. Against the Ravens, they had that you know exceptionally long first score drive. Um, in the second half, they continued to run the ball, even though Pacheco wasn't getting a lot of yardage. Um, and he's run, I think, an average of 21 times a game in the, in the playoffs. But Andy wanted ball control. And the Chiefs defense, and Steve Spagnuolo, as we know from history, is one of the great game planners um, for a specific game against a specific offense did a marvelous job of, you know, playing uh, contain and not allow points. So if you had told me that 
the Chiefs would not score in the second half against Baltimore and only get three first downs in the entire second half, which were all at the end when they had a great possession drive to kill the game. I would have thought you were crazy, but that's the way they played it, you know, and that's not a typical Chiefs performance. Similarly, the good news for the, the Niners was they came back in both of their playoff wins. They gave up leads and came back, which people were saying that they couldn't do. Kyle Shanahan, once he's down, he's out. Um, and it turned out not to be the case. So I personally would pick the 49ers. If I were a gambler, I would be very heavily tempted to bet the Chiefs plus the points. And, uh, and my belief is that the game will more likely be under 47 and a half, which is the betting lot. Um, because I think you'll see a lot of, you'll see a lot more ball, ball control than you would expect from these teams. And I think defenses will probably, will probably give them more trouble than you'd expect. Well, here's a question for you. Do you think we've came full circle with Andy Reid and we've went all the way back to the 1970s Stanford principle of short passing to control the ball? Because the one thing that I thought when I saw the Chiefs playing in the championship game was how much Mahomes reminded me of Joe Montana, just sliding around in the pocket, using his feet well, but still looking for short kind of passes. That's a really good point. Um, you know, it's almost classic West Coast offense, um, you know, at absent the use of the fullback. Um, and I think that's part of what he wants to do. I think he, he finally gave up on the idea that he couldn't keep going to Kadarius Tony and McCole Hardman and MVS on long downfield throws because even when Mahomes put the ball there, they weren't catching it. Um, and lots of people have noted Statistically, this is Mahomes' worst season, but he's doing what Andy wants him to do. He's throwing the ball less. Um, all those passes to Kelsey uh, in the championship game two weeks ago, uh, you know, all very much West Coast kind of things. And, you know, they, Romo would be yelling, you know, Hamilton's on him man for man. And you would see Kelsey go to the middle field and Hamilton would go out and they, they were playing his zone and Kelsey would find the same spot in the zone, Mahomes would find him even if he was being hit and had to launch a lob. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's it's back to old school Andy. And the weird thing with Andy is that only twice in his coaching career has he actually had a big threat receiver, Terrell Owens, for a year and some in Philadelphia, and then Tyreek Hill, you know, and... um He's never gone out of his way to kind of draft receivers high. He's always thought that he can scheme them into success. In that, he kind of resembles Bill Belichick. The higher he drafts receivers, the less likely they were to succeed. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I think I think this year he just, you know, McCole Hardman didn't work out as the next Tyreek Hill. And, you know, he got a good game out of Tony in last year's Super Bowl. Um, and he's gotten, he got a, couple of big catches out of MVS in the playoffs, you know, and I don't write out that that might happen again, you know, that he'll, he'll steam them into a position where they can contribute, but he's not going to make that the basis of his offense unless he decides to change everything up just to mess up uh, San Francisco's defensive, defensive schemes. But I can't see that happening because you really need to go to your playmakers and he's got Kelsey. Uh, he's got Pacheco. He's, and I think he's got Rashid. 
Rice as well, who's turning into you know to quite a good player in that system. Well, you talked about your first Super Bowl, um, Phoenix. Was that the first one you were an analyst on, or was that the first one you attended in person? It was the first one I worked on in person. Previously to that, I had done all, you know, Sky, Sky Super Bowls where they would have a party, you know, like at the Hippodrome, you know, we would be doing Philly, our, our usual thing of filling in the gaps. And um, I had that live thing. I had done talk radio back in their early days. We used to do it on Channel 5 on tape delay on Monday, which was very easy to do apart from when you've just had a child and you go in at one o'clock for one o'clock in the morning for the start, you do the intro and then they turn off the lights and say part one, first quarter, 45 minutes and you fall asleep. <laughs> you know, two minutes before they come back, the producer goes, Mike, Mike, so you say, yeah, you, uh, yeah, we're going to do this, this and that for analysts, analysis. Can you do that? I, yeah, sure. I had seen the game the day before, so it wasn't like I was missing anything, but still. Uh, and um, for a couple of years, I didn't do the Super Bowl. Um, in fact, I watched one in Auckland, which is one of the great experiences of my life because you watch the Super Bowl basically lunchtime Monday or brunch time. Um, and I uh, was in Auckland Harbor just before the America's Cup was about to start. And had, you know, had brunch, uh, a few beers. There were some Seattle fans there as well. And it was just the most civilized way to watch a Super Bowl. Um, you know, even the, even the 45 minute after I did bother me. But then the BBC, when the BBC got the contract, um, uh, Jay Comfrey was the host and I was the analyst. And um, we brought in Rod Woodson uh, for the first one that we did, which was the Giants and Patriots in Phoenix. And, um, you know, Ryan was just unbelievably good. And a lot of you know, A, he sees the game amazingly well. He, you know, he, some point, you know, at the points he was playing safety, you could see, you could see why. But he also almost instinctively pulled the broadcast to what the audience would expect, you know, without having to have to explain to him, you know, um, and without him doing the kind of, well, that's a first down. They get a first down when they go ten yards, you know, within yeah. you know, four plays. That kind, that kind of stuff. He just did what you know. I always thought a good analyst should do, which is explain things in terms that anyone could understand, or anyone at least with a modicum of of no of, of sports, not 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 necessarily American football. So he was just a joy to work with. And then the second year that we did it was in Tampa, and. In those, excuse me, in those days, you got more done, even if we, I never went out on a Monday, say. The BBC brought me out those first couple of years, I think on a Wednesday. And then it would progress, it progressively got shorter and shorter because you save money, obviously, on, on, fair, on uh, hotel rooms and things like that. But that year in Tampa, I remember on Saturday, they did the Hall of Fame announcement. And it wasn't that, it was a big thing, but it wasn't like, today when it's like an Oscar show, you know, and they presented like that. So it was on the Saturday, the, the writers who were on the, on the, uh, the board did their arguing and voting. And then late in the afternoon, they announced it. So I was sitting there with maybe half a dozen other journalists, uh, reporters, and, uh, they came out with the announcements and 
we heard them and Rod came down the, the corridor and I hadn't seen him since the year before because we didn't rehearse or anything during the week. There, you know, the, the tech crew was busy setting up the studio and all that. And so he came up and said, Mike, there's a rod. You know, guess what? You're in. <laughs> he said, I know. <laughs> they had called him or something and told him. He said, I'm just, and the first thing he said was, I'm really disappointed Germonti didn't get in. Germonti Dawson, yeah. who was the center on those Steelers teams he played on. I just thought that was such a nice, such a nice first response uh, from somebody. And certainly nobody, you know, Rod is one of those automatic first ballot Hall of Famers. You know, he's a contender for your all-time NFL team when you, when you pick all-time teams. So so that was great. Then, you know, for a couple of years with the BBC, we did it in um, London or in Salford. So I'd be in the studio and they brought in uh, Alex Smith, who was great, Tiki Barber, uh, Danny Amendola, who was very funny. <laughs> and um, and then we went back in the last one that we did with the BBC that time around. Uh, we did live in New Orleans when the lights went out. And uh, it was Jake and me and, and Willie McGinnis came in. It was, it was really good as well. Uh, then Channel 4, I was lucky is, to is, get on is this, is this when you're going to admit it? It was you that turned the lights out? Did you plug your phone in somewhere and that was it? The transformer oh, went? I worried about that for a long time. <laughs> I was used to it in the studio. Um, but, it, you know, the BBC then, you know, uh, Ron Chakraborty was the guy in charge. Said, "Yeah, we're lucky we had you in the studio because you, know, you were the only one who could talk about the first Super Bowl when the, when the um, when an NBC guy unplugged the feed because they weren't ready um, to go for the overtime." And um, so, yeah, then then we did a few more, and then uh, it went back to BBC, and we did the next few until COVID. We did on site with Chappers you know, at OC, and then. And Jason, that and I did what in studio the year, the last year of the channel, second year of the Channel 4 contract with OC. And that was the Patriots in Seattle. And, the, you know, if you have a, if you have a video of it or something, and they, they show the reaction shots in the studio when uh, Malcolm Butler intercepts that. It's brilliant. Those, the faces, uh, OC's drawings drop down to, to the side and all uh, so we, we were doing, you know, we did quite a few of those. Uh, well, uh, here, here's a question yeah. for you. And I, I know, I kind of know what the answer is because you're an absolute gentleman and I don't think you'd ever say a bad word about anyone. But was there any of the hosts or ex-pros that you worked with that you didn't hit it off with or you felt they weren't ready for television? It wasn't their thing? You know, it's just, yeah, in most cases, it's just one game. So it's not that hard, you know, to prepare for. Um, and there's nobody, you know, who, especially when you get someone, so for example, with Channel 4, we had Terrell Davis um, and Denver was in the, in the Super Bowl and he was fine. The game was such that he didn't, much to say after after Denver fell so far behind and Colin, Colin Murray kept coming to him about, you know, what can the Broncos do now? And, you know, are you feeling bad about what the Broncos are doing? 
it got a bit, it got a bit repetitive. I felt, I felt a little sorry for him. But basically, in those situations, you know, a lot of those guys, um, Tiki was Tiki was um, a broadcast a general broadcaster by that point, you know, and um, I'm not sure that that he he was. Uh, in, I did some earlier on with guys who in raw radio and stuff, which which was a different situation. But no, I mean basically. Um, it's I've always just thought I have my job to do and if at times I don't agree with what's said usually you can have a kind of friendly friendly discussion of it Ozzy and I used to have those <laughs> Ozzy and I would have those off camera I mean there was one <laughs> game we did at Webley where where literally we had the replay guys instead of you know like Usually you say, can you hold that? We might talk about that in the next break. They were going back and replaying something where OC thought that, that they were in, they were in, um, that they were in, it was a question of whether they were supposed to be in one defense and were in another or whether the individual guy had made a mistake. And OC thought the individual guy had made a mistake. And I thought they, the team was, had made, there was a bigger mistake. And we kept looking, we kept running this quarterback. Over and over again. And I'm going, look, see, look at his first step. He's he's going forward like he's going to take to got man to man. And then he yeah, and Osi, no, no, he's going. And it was it was hilarious. And the, the crew was laughing, and Matt came out of it and, and told the audience, I think, you know, for the last 10 minutes, Osi and Osi and Mike have been analyzing something where they disagree. And I wish we could have taped it and just rolled it in. Uh but that's that's good. I mean, that I think that makes us makes us all, you know, kind of better. And you know, what I've always tried to avoid is is the sort of uh, one team is balling and one team isn't or one team's got momentum and another team doesn't um you know i mean when when i say something like plays make momentum more than momentum makes plays it doesn't mean momentum doesn't exist because anyone who's played football knows that you know especially if you're an offensive lineman or tight end as i was you know once you start moving and rolling, you know, you do gain, you do have a certain amount of momentum. But I also know in the last game I ever played, our, our momentum was killed by two penalties. Idiot, not, <laughs> one was our team captain who had hurt his hand and couldn't play center, so he moved him out to tackle just inside me. And he went offside. And instead of having a second and three, we had a second and eight. And uh, our coaches, realized at this point that passing wasn't working and we were running the ball. So we run the ball and we get it to third and four. And then his buddy, the flanker outside me goes offside. And now it's, now it's a third and nine and we have to pass. And we, you know, we, lo- we lost our momentum because we didn't make plays. And I think that's still, that's still kind of the way momentum works because if it didn't, we wouldn't be saying all oh, the momentum's going to this team or all, you know, the momentum didn't go because it felt like moving. The momentum went because one guy made a play on one team or one guy didn't make a play or made a mistake on the other. So that's, that's one that's never going to be settled. So how, how far in advance do you get the phone call from production saying, Mike, are you free in February? Well, I mean, it's always been season, season by season. Yeah. Um, or in the case of the BBC, they didn't do the regular season. So I would do the playoffs um, in in studio, uh, like a playoff highlight show, 
um, after the fact, and then then we would do the uh, the Super Bowl live. Uh, but normally, you you know that before the season. I, I'm trying to think. In the older days, when I was doing radio and stuff, they might call a week before, you know, and and say, "Could you do the radio for us?" And I'd say, "Sure, of course." Um, so I think in the end, I did. Um, I had it written down. Um, I think I did twelve Super Bowls for the BBC, eight of them live on site, and uh, two for Channel Four, one live. So that's nine times on site. Uh, and I went to a tenth Super Bowl, Super Bowl twenty, as a because I worked for ABC and they had tickets, and for some reason none of their executives wanted to go down to New Orleans, which seemed very strange to me. <laughs> so I jumped at the chance to fly to Atlanta, meet one of my friends who wasn't one of my best friends at ABC, and we drove down from Atlanta to New Orleans for that one. Um, so when when you touched down in, in America in the the whole city, what? How are your days taken up with work? Yeah, it, it depends. A lot depends on when you arrive. And the way the schedule has changed now, Monday, for example, was the commissioner's press conference, but only certain press were invited. It wasn't open to the press. Whereas I, have only, I only went to one or two. They were open to the press, to everybody. And... um Keith Webster, who was the editor of First Down, used to ask the most embarrassing questions for the commission. And literally, I was in the commissioner's office one time meeting a guy called Craig Ellenport. I wound up writing an article for the Super Bowl programs. But I'm waiting, and the commission goes by you know, with his guys. And I said, oh, you know, Roger? We shook hands. And then as he left, I heard him say, what if I said, is that the guy from First Down? I'm thinking, uh-oh. And I to like chase after and say, well, I just write a column for them every week. I'm not the guy you're thinking of. He's Scottish, you know. But anyway, uh, that, that was probably a bad, a bad more. Um, and then the coaches, the coaches' interviews were more productive. You could, you know, I actually asked a question of Bill Belichick in one, and um, at uh, Tom Coughlin in, in another. Uh, uh, but you know, the questions were generally pretty good in terms of game prediction, but mostly. And then, as I said, the the presentations, like the the Hall of Fame Bowl, is now earlier in the week and, and is a big show. So mostly um, when you show up, and I would, by the end, I was going out on a Friday you know, for BBC and coming back on the Monday, you know, which is tough. You know, but on Saturday, nothing's happened. And uh, the, press, the press center is basically empty apart from... You know, some guys on Radio Row, um, you can walk down Radio Row and someone will probably interview you if they know who you are or or whatever. But basically, most of that week, because the practices are closed off, there's one reporter, pool reporter sent in. You can't watch the practices. And if you're an analyst in the analyst role, you don't get to, uh, it's not like uh, the broadcasters who go in from team meetings, you know, who, with meetings with the players, they ask for players with the coaches and they can ask whatever they like in those because they're closed. Um, you know, you, you prepared in advance. Usually you watch the tape. Um, usually, you know, I usually watch the playoff games to see how they're different because, um, 
in the playoff games, you play, you generally play better teams. So they're more revealing as to how you're going to game plan. If, if the teams have met earlier in the season, you would tend to watch that game as well. Um, but you go in kind of prepared with what you know and what you think, how you think they're going to game plan. And then you wind up talking to other journalists and reporters and commentators. You know, if you come, if you're there on Friday, you go to the press center and it's, it's, it's gossip central, you know, it's gossip central. Um, you, uh, you know, and you hear some great opinions and you, you know, you take, you take advantage of those, you, you know, you use them or you don't, but, but they influence the way you, you look at the game. You know, there were, everyone's got their own schedule. So I would also come in or a couple of times I would do like speeches, you know, you know or, or go to dinners for travel, travel people who had Super Bowl tours, mm-hmm. you know, and, and uh, entertain, entertain their, their tours. OC did that. Um, Jason did it. Even Neil Reynolds did it. And well, we, we one time, three of them, Jason and Neil and I were all doing the same one, which was great value for the, uh, <laughs> for the audience. Um, and there was like, there was one in New Orleans where I came in on a Friday on the same flights with Chappers because we, had to tra- had to change flights in um, Chicago because it's very limited direct service to New Orleans. Um, and uh, we got to New Orleans, and I picked up a car, but I was going to a hotel in Metairie, and Chappers was going to the hotel that all the other BBC people were staying in, which was in the in, in the Vieux uh, in the in the French Quarter of, of New Orleans. So I didn't see anybody literally until. Um, we were supposed to meet up for dinner on Saturday night. I found a restaurant driving around uh, in New Orleans and the message, but they'd all made other plans. So I go to the restaurant and eat where I booked it. And people, search a people. There's nobody there. They let me sit at the bar. There's that dinner, but, but I, I apologized profusely for that. For that one, so I literally didn't see anybody until we I got into the stadium, you know, and, and into our broad our broadcast position, uh, yeah, which which was very interesting. Uh, but and that was who was that with? Uh, I think we had Willie McGinnis on that one, yeah, because that was that was the um, that was Chappers and Willie McGinnis in in New Orleans. I think I said Jake before, um, and um, that's the way that it's kind of the way it worked, you know. I, I, I was prepared. It was just like doing, it was like doing a show in Britain, except, <laughs> except I'd float over, over toward and you, you soak in the atmosphere. You're, you're always more energetic when you're in the stadium, you know, and you, you're just feeling the buzz from the crowd and, and, and from the, you know, from the hype and whatever. Um, and you, get a better view of what's going on because you're watching the actual game rather than watching the TV feed where you're at the mercy of the director. And I'm, I'm not saying that to be critical because you know, everybody does a, a great job on the, uh, on the NFL. There's some brilliant directors that will the playoff. I, I was one, I was watching a playoff game and thinking, geez, he was Fox. And I think that must be Rich Russo who I worked with on NFL Europe. Fox was doing then, you know, and uh, so he was a junior guy then, but he's such a good game director, you know, and, and, and they're always ahead of it. They're always seeing the little things and putting them into replays. But yeah, we were in Minnesota 
And it was Osi, no, it wasn't, it was Jason, who said, Malcolm Butler hasn't been on the field yet. And looked over on the bench with my binoculars. He, you know, and yeah, there's Malcolm Butler sitting on the bench. And he said, you know, that was a great spot by Jadel. Um, and it made a big difference in that game, you know. And, um, and uh, then at halftime, I got him back by, by guaranteeing that, that uh, Doug Peterson was going to go for the touchdown at the goal line instead of kicking a field goal at the end of the first half. And that's when they ran the, the Phillies finish. So it's all so better. Look. Well, what, I mean, that's the kind of thing you, you see when you're there. You know, yeah. you're, you're not dependent on that. And you can watch if you're, your position is usually good enough. So you can see the usually what you miss is the secondary, you, what they're doing. Um, that's the bit that doesn't fit into the, to the screen. So you can watch the secondary and then know what the defense is. Right? By the way, the, the safeties move and the corners move. Uh, and that, that's, that's really important because um, it, it saves you a lot of time trying to guess in replay you know, you know, what, what might have happened. Were you at a Super Bowl when any scandal broke? I think like the famous one, was, was, it, was it Darren Sharper, the, the Falcons? Yeah, that was, um, that was Atlanta. I wasn't there for that one. Um, that was when um, Robinson, the safety, was... Uh, was it wasn't Garrett Sharp, it was Eugene Robinson. Yes, yes, I was, was was caught was caught uh, with a hooker, you know, or soliciting a police woman who was can, pretending can, to be. Can I, can I just point out this is a, a Scottish audience, uh, um, Mike? So it's not actually the rugby player. As yes, yeah, <laughs> it wasn't a rugby player. But I mean, we've heard, we've all heard all, all the hooker jokes. Uh, uh, and uh, yeah, that was like midnight, the night of the game, you know, and where I, I don't, I guess, I guess uh, they had Dan Quinn put a, a literal curfew on, which most coaches would probably do. But you, you, you know, at that stage, you probably shouldn't have to put a, put a curfew on on your players. You know, but then when I, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't at that one. No, no, shame then, wasn't it? But otherwise, there's always scandals that tend not. I mean, the reporters tend to be all over scandals that don't necessarily turn out to be true or to be scandals. You know, there's always something something uh, nobody knows that's going on behind going on behind the scenes. You know? but it hasn't. I can't. I can't recall one that's affected you. The one you mentioned affected the game, I think, in some ways. But I can't recall one in Super Bowls that I re- was at that uh, affected the game. Well, you're in a prime position when you're in the stadium. The halftime show is on and you get a great chance to kind of watch it from a view that nobody else gets. Do you actually spend time watching the halftime show or is that a chance for you to go away, recharge, get fluids and food on board? Ray Charger is the French would say, get me a cup of club. I, I don't think I've watched much of any halftime shows, to be honest. They, they, um, they have tended to draw me in, but usually the, the kidney imperative is, um, over, over rules the, um, the halftime show anyway. And, and because of where we normally are, uh, the international 
broadcast is an extent they build they build uh, booths extending the, the ones that exist because the demand is so high. So we're, we've generally been in a corner of the stadium, uh, which was great in Phoenix because we saw the winning catch. Ben Roethlisberger's uh, pass to Antonio. Uh, yeah. Well, that was right below us. So, so that was great. Well, and I said I was in Tampa the next year. Um, and um, you generally wind up using the public loops, which means you got to stand in a, little, in a queue for a while. And so you have to leave yourself most of that, that time just to, just to get back, just to get back to where, to where you should be. Uh, one, of the, one of the strange oddities of the glamorous world of commentary. The Civil was very glamorous occasion. Lots of famous people that circulate. Who are the more famous people that you've met at Super Bowl time? You. Well, well, mostly, mostly players. Um, you know, which is great. I mean, it, it was very hard to, to approach uh, Jim Brown, for example. Well, he was just walking on his own to go up the escalator and not walking very well. Um, basically bent over, bent over and chew. Um, you know, and, um, you know, some, some are now, some are now to Um, the crime writer, Michael Conley, is a friend of mine, lived in Tampa, second suit that I did in Tampa. I asked him if he, you know, if you'd like to, if I, I could get him or, you know, pass to go into the, um, the press sector and all that. I said, don't worry, I already got one. Yeah. So I'm, I'm him coming in. He was being surrounded by, by Dick Stockton, for example, who was doing the game on radio for CBS. And, you know, all these guys were his favorites. And so I was just basking in that, that kind of re- reflected reflected attention um, for him. But like I said, that, you know, the, the path that I, that I was on was not one that would lead me to to many of the big Super Bowl party events and that kind of thing. There is a press party, but that's always early in the week. And I was never there uh, for that. And media day, uh, I've never been to media day. Uh, generally have no regrets about not seeing the Mexican lady in her wedding dress and and the various other things happen. Um, it's kind of it's kind of a zoo. I mean, and uh, yeah, you can get in and get good interviews, but uh, do, do you get noticed by any of the fans when when you're there? Because there'll be a, a lot of people coming over from it's the UK. Very very occasionally, yeah, and usually outside the stadium. Usually that's when you're you're walking from the trucks, you know, to the stadium. Or something like that, and so you're you're basically mingling with the general crowd. It's so I gotta say, it's so uh, what ego boosting, uh, you know, just just so rewarding to have somebody come up, you know, say, uh, yeah, I'm here, I'm here because I became a fan when I was watching you on on Channel Five or on Channel Four, you know, you you and Mark or you and Colin or you and that, you know, that kind of stuff and. Uh, you know, if I if I love the way you explain the game to me, and you just you know you say thank you, you know it's 
it's really like, that's what you want. That's what I wanted to do. I mean, that's what I thought the job was. Every time someone tells you that, you know, they appreciate what you've done, that you've done well, it, it, it really is, it really is a boost because it's, they're the people who's, who are the ultimate judges, not the producers, you know, not the guys who hire and fire commentators and all that kind of stuff. And it's the audience. It's the, the, the real, the real judge. And, you know, NFL is a great place now because the uh, 2007 season was the one, you know, the first one with the, the official international series game, the Giants and the Dolphins. And the Giants went to the Super Bowl that year unexpectedly. And, and that move, while, you know, it bothered me at the time because Roger Goodell had just become commission and um, had shut down the NFL Europe, which I loved, and, you know, which taught me more about football than anything. Um, the international series has been a great success in in doing what NFL Europe was supposed to. One of the NFL Europe's problem was it was supposed to do two things. One was develop players, and the other was to promote the game. And it was much better at developing players than it was at promoting the NFL game in the fall. Um, but international series has been brilliant with that. Um, and the crowd, the old viewership, the crowd, the fan base has just grown exponentially as a result of it. You know, I and mean, I think that's just, it's just uh, been win-win for the NFL. And, and now uh, it doesn't make up for NFL Europe because I think the NFL still really needs a developmental league somewhere. But, but um, the international pathway is starting to actually produce players you know, from, from the rest of the world. And the game as a participant's game is always going to be a difficult sell in countries where it's not. No, sure, it's a big thing uh, already, which is most of the world. But the game as a spectacle, as a, as an entertainment, and, and as you know, as a sporting event you can enjoy, has certainly, you know, an easy so uh, has uh, has been boosted by that live presence. You know, and I think you'll see the same thing in Germany over the next few years, and then hopefully the NFL moves on to some more countries. Well, that, that's a very kind of interesting thing you brought up. Number, well, number one, I think the majority of people listening to this podcast absolutely adored NFL Europe. We loved it. It was fantastic. But with the expansion into London, with the games being so in Germany, ridiculous, you can't get a ticket. Sao Paulo now hosting a game next season. The Eagles are going to open it. Mexico's hosted. Is there any possibility that the Super Bowl could move just just for one year to an international I, city? I think it's always going to be a difficult thing because the the first reason being the most important reason probably is that it has to go in prime time in the States, which means it would have to start in the middle of the night if there were in Europe. Well, you know, eleven game time kickoff would be eleven thirty at Britain, twelve thirty in in Germany or or wherever. Um, and that is a difficult situation from any number of points of view. Uh, broadcast, broadcast, policing, transport, you know, you know, all, all the all those sort of things. The game would be kicking people, you know, the people would be leaving the stadium at three in the morning or, or later. And um, how, the, I mean, it's not an insoluble problem. The NFL 
can solve, can, you know, has ways of solving problems, making things happen. That's great. But I think, I think that's good. That would be a difficult one. Mm-hmm. Um, and you wouldn't have the time zone problem if you did it in Mexico or Sao Paulo. Well, you know, but I'm not sure that the NFL would want to bring all their sponsors, clients, and, and that kind of stuff that far or make them go that far uh, for, for a game. Uh, so I, I really think it's a long way off in the future. You know, I, oh. I've always thought that, that moving a team to London is a long way off in the future, but a Super Bowl is even further. Here's, here's, something, here's something that's left field then, Mike. We've seen two massive entertainment industries in the U.S., one of them being the WWE, the other being boxing, had absolute piles of cash thrown at them from Saudi Arabia, saying, come on over here, put on an event. Is that a possibility? Could the NFL accept billions to move the Super Bowl just for a season to Riyadh? I doubt, I, again, I doubt it. I, I don't think that, I think there's enough cash available to be able to say no. Um, don't, much as I often criticize the owners, you know, for, for putting money first uh, in many, you know, in many uh, different circumstances. I don't think that the lure of that kind of money would be enough uh, to, I mean, it's it's interesting to think of an eighty thousand seat stadium in Saudi filled with people who are football fans, mm-hmm. or even weirder to think of eighty thousand football fans coming across to Saudi, you know, to mm-hmm. to do that. But like I said, there's also the issue of of clients and business partners and broadcasters and air you know, that kind of thing, which probably makes it difficult and the time zone would be even worse mm-hmm. you know and i know the world cup does it but the world cup is all these different countries someone's always going to be playing at a weird time in their home country um for this one off the super bowl is two teams within a league and i think i think it's 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 a long it's a very long shot okay so one thing that they do quite well in America is um, swag and merchandise, um, especially if you go to the especially if you go to the Oscars. Did you get any cool kind of stuff for free when you were over at the Super Bowl? Well, again, when you show up late, you tend <laughs> it tends to be gone. <laughs> I showed up. I showed up for the. Uh, I was doing the you the world. The Winter Youth Olympics uh, and doing ice hockey off tube in Madrid, which is taking place in Korea. But because I was only doing the ice hockey, um, and it was it started the second week of the show, I showed up late at the studios in Madrid, and uh, all of the really nice gangwon Winter Youth Olympics gangwon in Korea hoodies were gone. All, all the techs were wearing them, and all the you know guys who'd been there before were wearing it, and. Um, the very apologetic production manager came up one day and gave me this little bag with a, a white Olympic stock thumb sweatshirt and t-shirt. <laughs> oh, I'm too old to be wearing <laughs> slim cut white. Um, <laughs> you know, but thank you. Thank the thought was the story I gave, gave it to my girlfriend. 
Um, and um, but the my favorite thing was a bootleg uh, Cardinals Super Bowl winning, you know, Super Bowl champs, Arizona Cardinals, which I I held for years, never being able to hook up um, with Nikki Bandini who was doing NFL quite a bit in those days. And, and um, she was a Cardinals fan. And it wasn't until Miami, uh, which would have been, I guess, just before the pandemic, just before the pandemic, that we finally were in the same place at the same time. And I had the shirt with me. It was always, you know, I would, I would bump into her to bed. I wouldn't have a shirt because I didn't know I was going to bump into her or whatever. And um, she was just thrilled to have this, Arizona Cardinals Super Bowl t-shirt, which never happened. Free swag. My favorites, I think, were these NFL notebooks made out of um, pigskin. That's pretty cool. Which, yeah, they're really cool. And, you know, I I still buy pads and stick the pads in, you know, because they're kind of nice that way. But I, you know, as the press score multiplies and multiplies, it becomes a, a decrease. A, a decreasing. Okay, it's like watching it spiral downward. Okay, because they, the more people show up, the less the less interesting the the press swag becomes. I think in the early days there were great kind of briefcases, jackets, and things like that. You know, we're down. I think we're down to to. Um, uh, Memory sticks and pens. Well, so I've had some great memory sticks from the New York one. I remember once I got um, a, a Scottish Claymore kind of a journalist bag that were given out free. And the reason why was because they printed the logo upside down. So they couldn't sell them. So they just gave them out to the press. But it was like, I was like the happiest I've ever been in my life. I had this. Claymores, and I would go to like Scottish football games covering it for all the papers in Scotland with my Claymores bag. And I actually had some fans stop me and ask me where they can get the bag. And I had to tell them yeah. it was, they printed it upside down. And did you tell, yeah, did you tell them that was the one they made for Australia and New Zealand? <laughs> well, we're coming my toward son's school. My son's school got a new headmaster when he was in primary school, and it was called St. Bart's. And the guy decided that Barnes would become a kind of uh, anagram for uh, believe, achieve, something, something, uh, succeed. And so he made the new thing, and, and we had to buy new book bags uh, for the kids. And my son, my son brought the book bag home. The next day I brought it in. <laughs> I had secretary at the, the work. I could have my money back. She said, Why? And I said, because succeed is spelled wrong. <laughs> and so I'm carrying around a book thing to and succeed spelled wrong. And she pulled the head teacher out and he said, oh, the, the uh, printers must have done that. And I said, they don't hand set that stuff anymore. They must have done it from a photograph or a drawing you gave them. That made me a big friend in the school office. But anyway. We're, I like, you know, stuff with mistakes is valuable, you know, like, like when stamp collecting, you know, or if you get something that has the wrong picture or something's misspelled, it, it becomes a hugely valuable thing. 
Is the same? And my claymores probably eBay gold right now. Well, I think um, they, there's some Star Wars figures where the original packs in like 77 were printed with the wrong spelling or something, the wrong font, and they're worth like 20, 30,000 pounds now. Yeah, have you ever seen the Saran Staley Star Wars figure? Wait, wait, they never made, they never made um, figures for NFL Europe, surely. They, they did, I know they did cards. They had cards. I know that if you got a Saran Stacey. I don't know, the Scott Cooper bobblehead doll would be a big seller. We might, be able to, we might be able to make that as merchandise. I need to make a note of that. <laughs> It'll be a fundraiser. It'll be a great fundraiser. How would, how would you tell the difference? Don't tell him I said that. <laughs> okay. He'll hear oh. it. <laughs> the, the I think that's a good note to close on. Yeah, the, tro- well, the trophy's been lifted. The confetti, the confetti starts to fall, Mike. We fade to black in the stadium. Yeah. What do you then do as a broadcaster? Do you, is it just a deflationary, okay, see you later, or... Are you still in a high for a long time? You can't get to sleep? No. For Super Bowls, no. It's it's not been that way. Um, you know, um, I think, well, first off, there's there's that relief that you've done a decent job, hopefully. You know, if you you might not get to sleep if you'd made a big blunder, you know, or if the lights had gone up and stayed as you'd caused it. Well, there, I remember after the one in Phoenix, and I have been left behind sometimes by my crew, by the crew I'm working with, which is even worse than like being the last guy to arrive or being stuck outside everyone else. And then you have to kind of find a, the boss or whatever again. But I remember getting back from Phoenix, and often it's my own fault because I would be doing a phone interview with, you know, with BC early in the morning, you know, you know or some, someone else. But I remember getting back to the hotel and the whole crew was in, in the bar of the hotel in uh, out near Phoenix Airport, actually. And um, they were they were starting to complain about some mistakes in the show. And I said, yeah, the Americans, you know, they just never give us what we want. And all of a sudden I realized, what am I saying? Us? <laughs> and that's when I realized I, I had actually left America behind in that sense. And I was a, a BBC broadcaster. True and true, you know. But yeah, but basically, I, I there have been like I've done boxing matches where you go back and you're you're really jazzed up by it. And I wrote a big piece once about uh, the uh, P. Whitaker, Jose Jose Luis fight in Paris. I did it on my birthday, and it was fixed. Uh, they took the, they stole the decision away from Pernell Whitaker, and. Not only did we go back to the hotel and, you know, moan and bitch about that for most of the night, you know, because it was so atrocious. But the next day I had a birthday dinner with some friends in Paris, a lunch, and I told them about it. And then I was shocked because they all laughed. They all thought it was, and I, I, you, I say, you can't, you can't understand what it's like to be at ringside, right? And I was in the ring after the fight um, and I saw the scorecards upside down, you know, the, the they were compiling the three scorecards and realized the fight had been stolen. You know, and then I had to turn to Whitaker's um, trainer, Lou Duva, and tell him that and bring him over for our interview with the ring. Because you, you can't, when you see what these guys do, you can't make fun of 
than being robbed because they're the ones who are putting their lives on the line. Um, everybody's making money off it. I am, you know, I'm, I'm being paid to do what I do. They only are going to make money in the long run if they survive, if they win, you know, and, and it only takes one or two losses. You're on the downhill thing. And more importantly, can they keep their wits about it? Can they, you know, keep their lives? And, and, and with football, it occurred to me at that point that, that the same kind of factors apply, but because it's a team sport and because we, we accept it all, it's not as dramatic. So it, I will still talk about plays I've seen from 20 years ago at Super Bowls, well, or well, less, a little less than 20 years ago, but you know, that I was there or guys I talked to or interviewed at the time or, or working with Rod or with Willie McGinnis or someone, you know, and getting a certain insight on, on what, uh, on something I didn't realize about how, how a player deals with this or that. Um, but in the end, af- afterwards, it's almost like, let's get on, you know, it's time to get on to the next thing. It's a great build up. You you spent a whole season, you spent a whole season covering it. You spent weeks preparing for it, uh, and then you so say your first feeling is really like, "Wow, that was a great game, and we did it justice." And I'm really happy about that. I'm content, and uh, that's not something that keeps you up at night. What <laughs> you feel content, and you've had a few beers after the game. Well, Mike, you said that you just hope that you do a decent job, and I can confirm you've never done a decent job in your life. Every single job has been superlative, and once again, you have been a gentleman, a scholar, a bon vivant, ran out of adjectives, you've been fantastic. Thank you very much for joining us, and we hope you enjoy yet another Super Bowl and a, a, a fantastic season. Yeah. Yeah, I, I have the feeling it's going to be a very good game, um, a really good football game. You know, not necessarily a shootout or, or the stuff that people really like, but a really good football game. They're two good teams, with, and they both have really good coaches on both sides of the ball. Excellent. Okay, thank you very much, Mike. Hopefully we get to speak to you very soon. See you anytime. <laughs>